I'm Joel Parker. And I'm Susan Moran. This is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, Labor Day, May 1st, 2012. Coming up, we'll hear from an energy expert about climate engineering. And we'll talk about land conservation efforts with the new president of the Wilderness Society. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. Local science journalist Florence Williams has spent the last few years studying breasts. She found that breasts are getting bigger, arriving earlier, and are loaded with chemicals. The result of her research is her new book, Breasts, A Natural and Unnatural History, which looks at where breasts come from, where they've ended up, and what we can do to save them. Because, according to the American Cancer Society, one in eight women will get breast cancer in their lifetime. There are so many risk factors for breast cancer, and there are so many protective factors as well. Um, one of the things that researchers have discovered is that the earlier a woman has children, the more protected she is against breast cancer later on. And so there, are, uh, uh, there's a couple of scientists, actually quite a few, but... There is one couple that I interviewed of scientists, and they are looking at how pregnancy protects the breast from breast cancer if you're under 30 when you have your baby. And what they would like to do is try to somehow mimic the, preg the pregnancy hormones uh, and give them to women who are at high risk of breast cancer. For example, women with a family history of the disease may be able to somehow take a pill or take a patch of very high levels of estrogen and progesterone hormones in the hopes that that might somehow armor their breasts against breast cancer. It's very controversial because, as we know, hormones have many unintended effects, as we've seen with hormone replacement therapy, which a lot of women take in menopause. And that turns out to be you know, quite a substantial risk, really, for breast cancer compared to other risk factors. So um, it'll be interesting, I think, to see how that plays out. The sad thing is, though, that uh, you know, those of us who had children late in life may think that helped us out too, but it turns out it really doesn't. If you have children after 35, your risk of breast cancer is really the same or even a little bit higher than women who never had children at all. That was Florence Williams, author of the new book, Breasts, A Natural and Unnatural History, speaking to KGNU's Maeve Conran. You can hear the full half-hour interview with Florence this Thursday morning at 9 o'clock. And catch Florence Williams in person at the Boulder Bookstore, Wednesday, May 9th at 7.30, and at the Tattered Cover in Lodo, Denver, on Thursday, May 10th, also at 7.30. For more information, you can go to florencewilliams.com. There are an enormous number of stars. Only some of them will have planets suitable for life. On only some of those worlds will intelligence arise. And perhaps a few of those civilizations will avoid the trap jointly set by their technology and their passions. That was Carl Sagan paraphrasing Drake's equation which starts with the number of stars in the galaxy times the fraction of stars that have planets times 
the number of planets around each star that can support life, times the fraction of those planets that produced life, then... But let's stop there. Before intelligent life comes life, and given how quickly life arose on Earth some hundred of millions of years after the conditions allowed it, surely life must be common in the universe. Well, maybe not. In a paper published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, Princeton scientists David Spiegel and Edwin Turner say we are too confident that we are not alone. The researchers used a statistical method to show that our present knowledge of life on Earth is not enough to figure out how often life has arisen in other places. Maybe it's happened often, or maybe it hasn't. So how can we continue Carl's march through the Drake equation? The scientists say that finding that life has arisen independently elsewhere, anywhere, for example, Mars, would do the trick. In the meantime, they say it's still the right thing to keep looking for E.T. You're listening to How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. I'm Susan Moran. So in today's show, we have a sort of twofer. Earlier, we gave a teaser of an interview with Boulder journalist Florence Williams about her new book, Breasts. KGNU's Maeve Conran will air the interview on Thursday morning, as we said. Well, it's safe to say that Florence's husband, Jamie Williams, should take credit for large swaths of land in the West that have been preserved as wilderness. He served as Nature Conservancy's Director of Landscape Conservation for North America as part of a 20-year career at the organization. During that time, he helped forge unlikely partnerships between ranchers, other landowners, and environmentalists, for starters. And he led major efforts to garner funding in Congress for conservation, including the largest conservation purchase of private land ever in the U.S., 500 square miles of forest in North West Montana. Williams helped develop the large landscape focus within the Obama administration's America's Great Outdoors Initiative, which aims to connect especially young kids to the outdoors. Today, Williams takes the helm of another major or- conservation organization, the Wilderness Society. We'll be sad to lose him in Boulder, but the nation may be greener and a wilder place because of his move to D.C. Jamie Williams is on the line from D.C. to talk about the science and politics of large landscape conservation efforts. Jamie, welcome to How on Earth. Thanks, Susan, for having me on your show. So first, I mean, it may seem axiomatic, but why do we need, I know this is your focus, but why do we need large land conservation? Is it more for individual species preservation, for whole food chains, for ecosystems, for our spiritual and economic well-being? Well, it's really for all of the above. Uh, Wildlife have no boundaries, and if we're going to conserve our rich natural heritage, we need to conserve large enough places to fully sustain the needs of fish and wildlife. The single grizzly bear's home range in Montana is up to 200 square miles. So that's when you think about uh, what a whole population of bears needs. It's it's a pretty large space. Or think about the Colorado River squawfish that swims hundreds of miles from the Colorado River up into tributaries like the Yampa to spawn. So we need big places if we're going to sustain our wildlife. But it turns out that people also... They don't just want isolated victories or postage stamp parks, but uh, they really want large landscapes that define their 
sense of place and well-being as well. And as you so say, working, uh, animals know no borders. Correct. So has the philosophy and the strategy, for that matter, changed much over the years in terms of how to grab that kind of land for, for conservation? Well, I think what we've all come to realize is that we can't cowboy it out alone. We, we really need to work together with local communities, with other conservation organizations, with agencies to think about how to conserve really large places that are inclusive of uh, protected public lands, uh, ranging from core areas like wilderness areas all the way to working agricultural lands that are all part of the mix of, of sustaining a functional landscape that really works for nature and people. And give a couple examples. I know we've heard quite a bit over the years and have interviewed some folks here about sort of the roaming or the mi migratory corridors. Is that much of the focus or, as you suggested, is it sort of a whole patchwork of agriculture, wilderness land, all the above? Well, both of those things. In Montana, where I worked for the last uh, you know, 10 to 15 years, uh, you know, the, one of our big focuses has been in this area called the Crown of the Continent, which is a 10 million acre system surrounding the Bob Marshall Wilderness and Glacier National Park. And the communities in that area along the Rocky Mountain Front, the Blackfoot River Valley and the Swan Valley, all realize the importance and desire to protect their local places, um, but realize that those places were, were part of a larger system that the wildlife depended on for their movement. So they, uh, they want to sustain their own quality of life and access to public lands through the protection of these areas, but also sustain the wildlife that makes these areas so special. So, and any particular examples based on, say, the Crown or the big land purchase you helped uh, garner, actually, in Plum Creek, of, of species that have actually been preserved where they may have not before? You know, what can we say about the grizzly, for that matter, now? Well, the big risk that we face with the grizzly in the crown of the continent, that is, that's the southernmost extent of grizzly bears in the U.S. that is still connected to Canada uh, outside of the Yellowstone population. And it looked, it appeared to us over the last 15 years that that, that population could be locked in from there to the north if uh, private lands were developed on the western side of the Bob Marshall Wilderness and on the southern side. And so the incredible conservation efforts of the, of the communities in the Blackfoot River Valley and the Swan Valley, not just recently, but really over the last 30 years, to sustain hundreds of thousands of acres of private lands through conservation easements on working ranches as well as through large forest acquisitions, has reconnected the Bob Marshall Wilderness to areas to the west, like the Mission Mountain Wilderness, and to the southwest into Idaho. And so maintaining that connectivity will allow that population to uh, connect to historic ranges that have been so important to them. And you uh, make it sound like it's easy. I know it's not. <laughs> and you've been struggling with this for years and really instrumental in getting a, a, lot, a lot happening. But is it, is it safe to say that now versus, say, even 10 years ago? I mean, ranchers are as instrumental as anyone in actually getting some of this land secured, farmers for that matter? Absolutely. I mean, everywhere I have worked in Colorado and Montana and in other places in the West, you know, every community I've come into, they care deeply about their place and sustaining the natural values that underpin their quality of life. And what we have found is if, if we all spend the time to listen to each other and work together, that uh, there's a strong common vision about sustaining 
these landscapes. And the challenge to the conservation community has been how to be um, added value to to basically support uh, local people in their own vision to sustain these places with the kinds of tools and resources they need. And um, so once once we all come to realize that you know we agree on 80 to 90 percent of what we would like to see, it's amazing what you can accomplish as you work together to achieve achieve a common vision for a landscape. Um, and it all sounds great, and obviously it, it is when it works. What, what's an example of like a particularly tense scenario going into it? You thought, holy Moses, there's not going to be collaboration here, even though there needs to be, but maybe there was in the end. Any, any specifics you can point to? Well, I, I, not one that I've worked directly on, but I will say I think the biggest concern that uh, that we face in the West is just the, the the strong pressure and demand for energy development that exists today, and uh, communities are concerned about this as well. They, they a lot of communities don't want to see inappropriate development in their backyard. And, Whether it's and a wind farm or natural gas, you mean? Correct, and so <clears throat> I think that um, again, being proactive and working with agencies and and with communities to think about how to develop energy smartly in a way that uh, moves into places that are the most compatible for energy and that avoid environmentally sensitive areas. And the the Obama administration, I think, has been working hard on trying to improve the way BLM, for example, implements energy development in a way that that will avoid really special areas and wild places and environmentally sensitive areas. Um, so I know you're in a pretty politically sensitive position now, and congrats on your first day on the job, by the way, at the Wilderness Society, Jamie Williams. But um, what sort of track record would you give so far the Obama administration? I mean, given that he's hardly mentioned climate change since he came to office, I would think conservation would be as anathema, if not more, if you can't attach jobs to it, given the pressure he's under and, and everything else. But what, how, would you, how would you score? Well, I think I think Obama and the administration really care about conservation. I think they've done many uh, many things that have demonstrated their commitment to conservation. They're, in terms of land conservation, they launched the America Great Outdoors initiative that is focused on getting the federal agencies to collaborate with each other and with local communities to better protect large landscapes and also to reconnect an urbanizing nation uh, to the outdoors, especially youth. So that's that's been a good initiative. They, uh, you, we've had tough funding challenges, but the administration has pushed for increasing the Land and Water Conservation Fund uh, back to its historic level of $900 million a year that sustains our parks and public lands. And uh, they've, they've made uh, recent decisions like protecting the Grand Canyon from uranium, uranium mining that, uh, that are really important. So, you know, is, is there more that they can do? Absolutely. There's a lot more that we would like to see them do to protect large landscapes and our wildland heritage. But I think that, um, you know, they've, they've uh, have made a, a lot of really important moves for conservation that, um, that I think set the stage for uh, what can be achieved if the administration continues to in power. So one other thing, if there's one or two, you know, big impacts you really want to have at the organization um, over the years, who knows how many you'll be there, um, what would it be? Well, I came to the Wilderness Society because of its extraordinary legacy in helping Americans protect over 110 million acres of wilderness in this country. 
Uh, they're very collaborative, practical, and effective, and I really want to build on that legacy to help local collaborative efforts protect America's wildest places. So, you know, that's number one. And um, number two, I think that, uh, you know, let's be really clear about what we're for, I think, in the conservation community as a whole. Uh, we always have to defend uh, places from various threats, but uh, being very proactive in protecting what we know Americans really care about, which is their public lands and sustaining the health of those lands, um, you know, that's, that's what I'm focused on. And then finally, I think a big concern, not just for the Wilderness Society, but for the whole conservation movement, is how do we reconnect Americans to the rich public land heritage that we have, which has been such a hallmark of our history and uh, such a defining characteristic of what America is about. You know, more than 80% of us live in cities in the U.S. now, and how do we, how do we reconnect uh, people, not just to the remote wild places, but even to local wild places, and sustain these places that are so important, not only to nourishing our soul, but uh, they source our clean air, our clean water, and are so vital to our well-being and, and to our economic health as well. Well, speaking of connecting, we hope to uh, connect with you in the future and certainly wish you all the best of luck. That was Jamie Williams, the new president of the Wilderness Society. Thanks so much for coming on the show. And for Great, more thank you. For more information on the organization, you can go to wilderness.org. You are listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Joel Parker. Geoengineering means large-scale intentional manipulation of the climate to counter the effects of global climate change. Advocates proposed ideas like placing giant shields in space to block the sun's rays from striking the earth and seeding the ocean with iron particles to speed up the removal of carbon from the atmosphere. Critics cite a host of social, moral, and technological problems. Climate engineering may be a solution of last resort, but the time for last resorts may be rapidly approaching as we spew more and more carbon into the air. How on Earth's Jim Pullen talked recently with Dr. Doug Ray about the readiness of climate engineering. Ray is an expert on energy and atmospheric carbon removal science and technology and is an associate lab director at the Pacific Northwest National Laboratory. So there really are two components uh, to geoengineering. Uh, one is what we, I would refer to as solar radiation management, uh, which is a way of doing something to the uh, atmosphere to re reduce the flux of incoming solar radiation. The second is are there ways to reduce the concentrations of CO2 or other uh, greenhouse gases in the atmosphere and therefore reduce the forcing. Uh, that's another type of, of geoengineering. There's been modest amounts of research done in both areas, but uh, there are many, many, many unanswered scientific questions uh, that, frankly, before we would even consider a, a deployment, really need to be addressed thoroughly. And, and then so we have a framework to discuss whether or not this is a good thing to do or not. There are some things that fall into the category of geoengineering that are relatively straightforward. Some of the companies that produce uh, tiles uh, for roofs are producing light-colored uh, shakes oh, or shingles. Yeah. That, I mean, that's a spectacular thing, right? I mean, 
Uh, in fact, there was a recent, uh, I think I read it this morning on uh, Science Now, um, if we were to replace uh, gradually and over time, and, and you know, as roofs are in need of replacement, if we were to replace them with light-colored materials, uh, it would be, and, and once we got that done, it would be the, have the equivalent effect of taking millions of cars off the road. And it's a spectacular thing. I wouldn't bin that in geoengineering because it's really about dealing with the built infrastructure and making changes. And I, I, I don't think there's, I think there's widespread agreement that this is a great thing to do and there's nothing wrong with it. And we should, frankly, get on with it. But now when you start talking about putting mirrors in space or, or seeding the atmosphere with sulfate particles or putting iron in the ocean. Well, I can speak in general with all of them, and that is, it is my understanding that we don't know enough about them to really give them serious consideration for large-scale deployment. I know a little bit about, and my colleagues are involved in research in the idea of... Uh, adding particles to the atmosphere to reduce or to increase the reflectivity of the incoming solar radiation. So that falls in the category of solar radiation management. And again, this has been, uh, it's a, there have been very modest efforts uh, put forward to understand how this works and if it has a prayer of being a good idea. That's The concept is adding stuff to the earth and, and hoping that it has the desired consequence, and, and it might. But uh, again, right now the questions are so so unanswered, so many unanswered questions that I think there's lots of research that would need to be done before that such an idea would be given serious consideration. You know, in my view, I articulated this several times at the conference, we, we have to step forward with new approaches to energy production and use that allows us to really get carbon emissions down to zero. That's where they have to be to stabilize carbon dioxide in the climate, and, and I... I think the evidence is compelling that that's something that needs to happen. We're over the line at what, over almost 400 parts per million now? Do you think we're over the line? I do think that there are demonstrable consequences that will, that will have impacts on, on human beings and the, and the global ecosystem. Those impacts will be greater in parts of the world than others. Um, we're starting to see some of them. Can we adapt to them? Many of them, yes, without dire consequences, but some, I think, are having significant consequences. And, of course, the going forward uh, with sea level rise, we're going to have significant issues, especially in nations and communities that don't really have the adaptive capacity. And that really means the developing nations, the mega deltas in Asia and Africa, small islands, are certain to be impacted, even at the levels that... Uh, that are in place now. And of course the impacts just get greater uh, the more and more carbon dioxide we human beings pump into the atmosphere. Probably there are some people that will want to substitute climate engineering for doing anything about energy or doing anything about controlling sources. I'm working my hardest and encouraging my colleagues and encouraging the people I know to work their hardest to put in place energy efficiency, conservation approaches, new sources of energy that are that that are that emit less carbon hopefully getting us to to zero in my view this whole idea of of geoengineering is it's a last straw that we for for whatever reason we either have been we have been unsuccessful whether it's a technical reason or a political reason or whatever we've been unsuccessful at converting our energy system into what it needs to be and frankly what it could be but we may end up in that situation and I think uh, you know our job as scientists of course is to provide that kind of objective basis of information so the decision makers policy makers uh, the public the knowledgeable and, and willing to learn public can uh, has some some solid information upon which to make decisions and and recommendations 
I'm not a, at all an advocate of deployment of geoengineering technologies. I am an advocate of research to understand what are the tools available to us to address these this very urgent issue, in my view, of, of climate change and its impacts on people and ecosystems. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Joel Parker. This week's show was produced and engineered by Jim Pullen. Headline contributions by Jim Pullen and additional materials by Maeve Conran. Our theme music was written by and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Fleet Foxes and Genesis. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and an extended interview of today's feature, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Susan Moran. And I'm Joel Parker.